hello everybody. My name is Travis, if you didn't catch my name earlier. I'm the Youth and Next Gen Pastor here. I'm so excited to be here with you all. I'm excited to be here with you all watching online as well. And if you want to follow along with my sermon notes, you can do so um, on the Connect on the, um, the Bible app and just search Connect Church Akron, Ohio. Or you can grab the QR code from our new series here, uh, which is called Present. And so we are talking all about the good news of Christmas. And um, if, if we're really excited to be talking about this and be engaging the Christmas season together. And so the idea of this series is that Jesus is our present, that the good news of Christmas is that Jesus has come as a present to be present with us. I just said present a bunch. Um, And so that's what we're going to be talking about here today. But here's the deal. I think that a lot of us have a different idea of what Christmas is. We all have a, a different answer to this question when I say, what is Christmas? Maybe some of you would say something like Hallmark movies and peppermint flavored everything and maxed out credit cards and vacation and um, the extra a big surprise gift that you told the person you weren't going to buy, but you actually did. Hot cocoa sitting around the fire, snow, Santa Claus, Christmas drama, family drama, Christmas cookies, ornaments, all sorts of things, right? Or maybe you have a version of Christmas that's like a church Christmas, if you will, and you think of singing uh, Silent Night by Candlelight and going to the manger play and setting up a manger in your house and reading the Christmas story. And whatever version of Christmas you have in your head, when I ask the question to you, what is Christmas? I think that all of us in some way, shape, or form would sum it up as a version of a season of joy or a season of good news. No matter how you define it, you probably land at some version of season of good news, season of joy. But what is that good news? And more importantly, what was the bad news that came before the good news? Because the reality is, Jesus would not have needed to come in the first place if everything was already good. So in Christmas... While of course, of course, there's great joy to be had, we need to look at why we need the good news in order to answer this question. And God is no stranger to the fact that the world is deeply broken and he sent Jesus as a present to do something about that brokenness, which is why we have such great good news around this time of year. But we need to remember why he needed to come in the first place. So we're going to go over to Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to pick up the story in verse 10. This is Matthew's version of the Christmas story. And here's kind of what's happened so far, because we're picking it up right in the middle of the action, okay? So what happened was there were these wise men from out of town. They were astrologers. They were looking up at the stars, and they started noticing some strange star patterns. And they started to do some math, and they connected the dots to, oh yeah, The Jews have always talked about, in their scriptures and everything, they've always talked about um, that a savior was going to come to Bethlehem. We should go talk to King Herod about it. Maybe he has more information. So King Herod was in Jerusalem, and he was the king at the time. So these wise men come up to Herod, and they tell, they tell Herod, right before we pick up this story, they tell him, hey, did you see the, the stars? We think the savior that they talk about in Bethlehem is being born, or has already been born. Do you know where he is? And Herod and some of the other Jewish leaders freak out about this. They don't think this is good news at all because if the Savior's here, if there's a new king in town, that means their time is over. 
So they, Herod holds a secret meeting with these wise men right before we pick up the story in verse 10. This secret meeting goes something like this. Herod pulls them aside and says, hey guys, look, I think this is great that you totally found the savior and all of that. When you finally track him down, come find me again and I wanna come worship him too. I wanna come see what, the, what all the fuss is about. So come back and tell me where he is so I can come find him. This is where we pick up the story, verse 10. It says this, when they, being the wise men, saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a lot of joy in one sentence. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are. Let's recap this just for a minute. There were some wise men, some old dudes who looked at stars a lot from a different town. They're looking up at the stars and they see something strange and they have to go investigate it and they start doing the math. They connect the dots that this is, this is pointing to the savior that was to come to Israel. And so they go and they go to try and get help from King Herod because they know the Bible and they know that he's gonna be in Bethlehem, but they're not really familiar with it. So they go to uh, Herod and they ask him for help. And then Herod and others in Jerusalem are paranoid that someone's gonna overthrow them and take their place, take their spot as king. And he tries to trick the wise men into leading him to Jesus to kill him. The wise men go on their way. They find Jesus, they worship him, they give him gifts. And they get a vision in a dream. Don't go back to Herod. That's going to be bad news. So they go back to their home a different way. Herod finds out about this. He gets angry. An angel shows up to Mary and Joseph at this time and tells them to flee the country, go to Egypt, because he's going to try and kill them. And then Herod realizes that the wise men weren't coming back. He had to act to keep his power. Decides to have all male children two and under in Bethlehem killed. I don't want to mince my words here. Jesus being born caused a paranoid king to commit a genocide of toddlers. There was a genocide of toddlers. 
Jesus was born into a situation where there was intense and immeasurable turmoil. It was by no means pretty. And yeah, sure, there was some joy to be had because anytime there's the, a birth of a new kid, there's some joy. But for a second, could you imagine being Mary and Joseph? Think about all that they just went through in a short window of time. You just had multiple encounters with angels. And mind you, we often like to think of angels as just humans with wings and a halo. But in the Bible, angels are described as terrifying beings of great power. They're often described as just like a bundle of wings with a bunch of eyes or like burning wheels or all sorts of other things. It's why whenever angels show up, their first phrase is, don't be afraid because I know I look terrifying. <laughs> right? So you just had multiple encounters with angels. The first one shows up and he tells them, you're going to give birth to a child that's, oh, by the way, it's not your child and uh, no pressure. That's going to be the savior of the world, by the way. Then he goes, jo then an angel shows up to Joseph and he says, yeah, I know you have every right to divorce her because this kid's an illegitimate child, but don't do that. Oh, but hey, also the king is getting wind of all of this and he's doing a census to make sure that everybody goes back to their hometowns to track down the savior specifically. Oh, and the baby was born. Mary and Joseph, you actually need to run because the king is sending a death squad to kill all the toddlers and infants in the region. You can come back to your home once he dies. Oh, wait, by by the way, uh, he's dead, but you can come back, but you can't go back to your own house because his son took over as the king and he knows about you, but you can go back because he doesn't know enough about you, but you just have to uproot your whole family and go to a different town that you've never lived in before and start your life over there. That's insane. Mary and Joseph just went through the ringer in just a few short years. Now, could you imagine being one of the mothers for a second? You know, if you're, an, if you're a good Israelite person who lives in Bethlehem, you know your Bible, and you know there's going to be a Messiah. They talked about it all the time. You know there's going to be a Savior, and you're so excited about this Savior because your people, being a Jew, have known oppression and occupation at every single turn in your history, and you are so desperately waiting for somebody to come and fix it and make it better. You start to see some absolutely wild stars in the sky. You maybe even hear some rumors from some shepherds and other people that the Savior's been born, and you start to get a little excited, right? You're thinking to yourself, this is the moment. This is the time. This is when everything's going to be okay. And then you're sitting there at the government-required census family reunion, and the soldiers show up. They kill every infant and toddler. We hear the words that the mothers of these children scream. A voice was heard in Ramah. That's Israel. Weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused, refused to be comforted because they are no more. These are the deep and visceral cries of lament. They refused to be comforted. You ever been there? 
where you see something so horrible, so life-altering, so disturbing that no amount of comfort can actually bring you joy. No amount of comfort is appropriate because whatever you just saw was horrible. What was supposed to be a joyous and incredible moment in history was met with horrific and deep sorrow. And you see, too often, I think around this time of year, we often trick ourselves into incredible shame. Because the reality is around this time of year, we often feel wrong for having the past that we do because we're reflecting on the year that we just had or maybe we, we got a really bad diagnosis recently and we're still kind of dealing with it or maybe we're, tr- we're struggling with the loved one that's normally here around this time of year, but, but they aren't anymore. And we feel shame. We feel like we're in the wrong because it's, it's Christmas, right? It's supposed to be joyous. It's supposed to be singing. We're supposed to be excited about presents. It's Christmas, right? And what's our response when we feel that shame? What's our response when we feel that we're deeply wrong? Maybe you isolate yourself and you just think, you know, if I don't see anybody for the foreseeable future for around these holidays, I can just forget about everything. People won't actually know how deeply I'm hurt. I can just recluse into my house and no one will know. Or maybe you do the opposite. Maybe you busy yourself. You know, if I just plan something every night from now until New Year's Day, I make sure that the kids are all at different friends' houses all the time, so I'm stuck in the car driving around and I have something to complain about with my friends that we're so busy all the time. But really, I'm just doing that because I want to distract myself from the pain that I'm really feeling inside. Or maybe we justify ourselves. And we think to ourselves, yeah, you know, I'm, yeah, it's been a hard year. It's been a few couple hard years maybe, but I'm, I'm actually okay. It's not really that bad. I can figure this out. What the mothers in Matthew do when they experience shame, when they experience grief, They lamented. They lamented. Here's a quote from a few weeks ago. I want to bring it back. It says this, Lament is not despair. It is not whining. It is not a cry into a void. Lament is a cry directed to God. It is the cry of those who see the truth of the world's deep wounds and the cost of seeking peace. It is the prayer of those who are deeply disturbed by the way things are. You see, lament is not just writhing in pain and sitting in despair and not doing anything. You see, lament is not complaining because it's super cathartic. It's not just going to a mountainside to avoid Lament's a, a directed cry to somebody, and it's not just anybody. Lament is a cry directed to somebody who can do something about it, and that is God. It's also the cry of those who know and have experienced the world, have understood it and been in it, enough to know that there's some messed up things here that are deeply disturbing. There's some deeply disturbing things in our own self. 
And lament is also understanding that making those things right is going to cost something. And that, that is where we find the hope of Christmas. Hope of Christmas is wrapped up in that lament of those mothers. You see, lament is required in the life of a believer. Required. Because to know Jesus is to know that things are not the way they should be. That if you know Jesus, and if you don't know Jesus, you need to know this right off the bat. That part of why we worship Jesus, part of why we run after him, part of why we do everything here at Connect Church, part of why we sacrifice our lives to Jesus is because we know that things are not the way they should be. And we know that Jesus is the solution to those things. We know that there's pain, but there's also Jesus who stands in the gap. We know that he can change something, but we're also deeply, profoundly aware that things are not right. But how often do we really do that? How often do we really take the time to lament? In our lives, it's so much easier to distance yourself from one another through isolating. It's so easy to speed through the pain by being busy. It's so easy to claim innocence by saying, I'm not the problem, it's everybody else. In other words, I think we often cheapen salvation through breezing past the pain of suffering, by breezing past the way things actually are, which are not right, for a quick solution that makes us feel good. That's not the way Jesus sees the world. We're going to go over to my all-time favorite chapter of the Bible. John chapter 11. And we're going to, again, jump right into the middle of this. And so I want to give us some context of what we're walking into, because you're going to see something really profound here in just a few short verses, but it requires some context. So John chapter 11, if you've never read it, here's what happens. Jesus, when he walked the earth, was very, very close to these three siblings. There was a sibling group he was really close with. There was one named Lazarus, one named Mary, one named Martha. Lazarus, Mary, Martha. This, Mar- this Mary here is not the Mary that gave birth to him. It's a different Mary. There's too many Marys. But uh, <laughs> however, Lazarus, Mary, Martha. Okay? Some scholars would even argue that Lazarus was Jesus' best friend when he walked the earth. So Jesus is in a town two days walk away from Lazarus' house. A messenger comes to Jesus and his disciples and tells Jesus, hey, you know that guy Lazarus who you love so dearly? Yeah, he's sick and he's probably going to die. Now, I don't know about you, but if you had a best friend who you get a word, you get a phone call that says, hey, your best friend is sick and probably going to die, what would your reaction be? Because I know my reaction would be to drop whatever I was doing to go spend time with that person. Because I know I'm not going to see him very much longer. I know that they're probably not doing well if they're about to die, right? Jesus does something interesting. It just says he waits for two days. So on purpose, he's already a two days walk away from where Lazarus is, gets word his best friend is sick, and waits for two whole days. 
I think that's weird. You think that's weird. The disciples thought that was weird. So they actually ask him. They go, Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus tells them, actually, I'm, I, the reason we haven't left yet is because I know Lazarus is dead. And actually, for your sake, I'm glad he's dead because I'm going to go resurrect him from the dead and you're going to see something amazing about God. Now let's go. So they show up to Lazarus' house. And right before, we're going to look at the interaction he has with Mary, who's one of the sisters. Right before this interaction with Mary, he has a really great interaction with Martha that I encourage you to go read. But the scene that Jesus walks into is he walks over to Lazarus' house and he sees a bunch of people who are mourning because they had just done the funeral for Lazarus. So Jesus is walking into a funeral. There are people who are weeping. They are sad. They are all over the place. And Lazarus is in the tomb. Martha comes up to Jesus. They have a great interaction. We're going to pick up with Mary in verse 32. Here's what it says. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you had just been here, None of this would be happening. I, Mary knows. Mary knows Jesus really, 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 really well. Knows his power, knows that he's God, and she is calling him to do something. He didn't show up. She laments at Jesus' feet in this moment because she's confused and lacking understanding. If, if you had just been here, God... None of this would have happened. Mind you of the Israelite mothers here. Now Jesus' reaction is important. Don't miss it. Here we go. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, remember he's at a funeral. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. See, in this moment, Jesus does three really important things and we need to talk about them because they're all different and they're all really important, all right? He's deeply moved, he's greatly troubled, and he weeps. Deeply moved, greatly troubled, he weeps. So when it says he's deeply moved, it says he's deeply moved in his spirit. What's interesting here in this passage, it has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. It actually has everything to do with his human spirit. That something in his humanity, when he showed up to Lazarus's funeral and his death, and he saw his friends weeping over what was happening, something within his humanity literally changed. It moved That something, when, his, when he experienced death, something about his humanity was different. And then it says he was greatly troubled. And, the, and this is actually one of those phrases that when you translate it to English, it doesn't really translate well. Because in the Greek, greatly troubled here actually means grieved to the point of anger. 
You ever grieved so hard you've been angry? And I mean viscerally angry. This is also the same word that if you were speaking Greek, you would use to describe a raging bull with nostrils flared, ready to charge at whatever was in front of them. Grieved to the point of anger. That being moved in his humanity, something about the situation moved him to grieve to the point of anger. And then he weeps. Which begs the question, what is he deeply moved about? Why is he greatly troubled? What causes him to weep? Because if, you, if, because if he purposely waited for two days, which he did, and he was already two days walk away from Lazarus, and he knows he could have shown up to fix Lazarus, he on purpose waits for two days. And he told his disciples he was on purpose waiting for two days to resurrect Lazarus from the dead. And if you haven't read this chapter, in like four verses, he goes over to the tomb and resurrects Lazarus from the dead. So he's clearly, clearly not deeply moved or greatly troubled or weeping about Lazarus himself because he knows exactly what he's about to go do. So what is he weeping over? You see, Jesus was deeply moved because of his humanity, but he's greatly troubled Grieved to the point of anger because of his deity. Being God, Jesus created everything. He created us, and he created us to be in eternal relationship with him forever. But when we turn from God, we ruined that relationship. When we decided to take definition of good and evil into our own hands, we ruined that relationship. And what did we introduce? We introduced death and sin into the world. Key word, introduced death into the world. See, you and me, being humans, we weren't created with death in mind. We weren't supposed to die. We weren't supposed to understand what it means to be separated from somebody forever from the grave. You see, we weren't, we weren't created with the capacity for that, which is why grieving hurts so bad. And Jesus, being God and now also being human at the same time, understands this in a different way. So he's greatly troubled about it. He didn't create us to experience what Mary is experiencing in this moment. And he's weeping because he experiences firsthand the effects of death and the separation it causes. He's weeping because he sees the pain and the sorrow that it brings. He's crying out because he knows the cost of what he's going to have to do to bring peace to Mary and those of us who are like her, which is all of us. Jesus is lamenting death and sin itself. And in this moment with Mary, he sees somebody desperately needing understanding. Do you catch her need for understanding within her cry? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. She doesn't get it. She doesn't quite understand what Jesus is doing or what he wasn't doing to get there to fix the situation at hand. 
And when Mary shows up to Jesus, he sees Mary's desperate need for somebody to be close to her. Because she was surrounded by people ever since Lazarus died, but she never felt so alone. In this moment, Jesus sees Mary's desperate need for somebody to slow down. Because ever since Lazarus died, everything was moving so fast. The world became a blur. Suddenly people were at my doorstep and there's all these people here crying and I don't understand why Jesus didn't just show up. I sent the messenger in the first place. What is happening? It's just going and going and going and going. And in this moment, Jesus sees her need to slow down and be present with her. And he sees Mary's desperate need for somebody to intervene. To intervene because we've all been affected by sin and death. So Jesus has to intervene. And notice what Jesus doesn't do here. It's just as important as what he does do. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't tell her, oh, I'm praying for you. He doesn't pick her up and go, let's go walk over to the tomb. I'm going to go resurrect him right now. He doesn't tell her to stop crying. He doesn't tell her to figure it out. He doesn't tell her to do any of that. He doesn't even tell her, he doesn't even go to her and say, I have a plan for this. There wasn't a plan for this. Death wasn't supposed to be there. So he's deeply moved. He's greatly troubled. And he weeps. And in lament, Jesus does the opposite of what we are all so quick to do, which is to create distance, to speed up, or to claim innocence. And in lament, what it forces Jesus to do and forces all of us to do is to slow down, to get close, and see our need for an intervention. And maybe this Christmas, maybe this Christmas you need a reminder that Jesus coming as a present was to enter your mess. Which brings me to our connection point for today. Jesus came to address our mess. You see, Jesus is well aware that all of our lives are forever messy, that they're riddled with horrendous things that cause us to cry out and are quite frankly, deeply disturbing. He came to seek that understanding and be present with you because he knows firsthand how much it hurts. He came to bring profound, flourishing, and abundant hope to you and me, but it's a hope that is only possible in the worst of sacrifices. And Jesus he made the biggest sacrifice of them all by taking the weight of the sin and death that we deserved to show us a life full of hope, a life full of flourishing, and a life full of peace. And that, that is the good news of Christmas. That is why we celebrate Christmas. That is why we are excited about the Savior being born. It's about a God who came to be in the mess with you at a pace that brings true healing.
and through immense sacrifice provides grace even in the deepest of offenses. You see, this Christmas, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to get close to Jesus because he's close to you. Get close to Jesus this Christmas and not only get close to Jesus, but get close to other people around you. Get close and slow down with them. Part two of my challenge, I would encourage you to slow down. Maybe say no to some stuff so that you can show up in people's lives, so that you can show up in those family members' lives, so you can show up at the person's life who's sitting right next to you in these chairs, so you can show up in people's lives in your neighborhood. And I also want to challenge you to understand the sacrificial hope that Jesus brings. Because that is what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for coming here for being a God who didn't just sit in his high tower telling us how the world works and how to figure everything out, but instead you showed up to understand our mess, to be with us in the middle of it. So for me personally, God, I I thank you for being in my mess with me. I thank you for being disturbed by the way things are with me. I thank you that you can help me move towards healing, but you don't ignore the pain. And I pray for each and every one of my friends in here. That you would show up. That you would challenge them with the good news of Christmas. That you came to get close, to slow down, and to intervene. We love you. Amen.